We, as Josh said, are going to come to the end of a significant section in the book of Ephesians, and I'm very excited to get to this point. I would ask for prayer today. I'm going to be preaching at the Glory of Christ Fellowship in Elk River this afternoon, and excited to go over and minister to their body this afternoon, so be praying for that. Next week, here at Grace, uh, Colin Ruder will be preaching. Many of you know Colin from our time at the Free Church in Annandale, so we're excited to have him with us next week as he brings a message from Psalm 91. So hope you plan to come back and hear from him and be encouraged by the word. So before we start today, I'm just going to open with prayer, and then we'll begin. So pray with me. Father, what an encouragement to be able to come now to your word. Having sung of the great love with which you loved us, having verbally acknowledged that it is not us, but it is the power of Christ working through us. Asking the question, can it be that you would sacrifice your son to redeem us from our sin? And we say, yes, it can be. And we give you praise and thanks. Father, the way that you have ordained things and put truth set to music and we use this in our worship to stir our affections to rehearse true things from your word I am so thankful that you have done this and I pray now as we come to your word that we would place ourselves under it as our authority that we would not bring our own ideas, our own conceptions to the word, but that we would let your perfect, true, and infallible word dictate our thinking. That's what we want. We want to be in conformity to Jesus and his word. So Father, come and do this work by the power of your spirit, by the power that you work mightily in us. It's in Jesus' name and for his sake that I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, like I said, we come this morning to the end of the first major section in the book of Ephesians. As we talked about at the beginning, there are two main sections, chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then 4, 5, and 6. 1 to 3, 4 to 6. In these first three chapters, Paul has laid out a very clear, very precise set of theological truth. And as we move into chapter 4 in the coming weeks, we are going to see him instruct us through the word how to put those truths into some practical applications. This is the 23rd sermon we've preached in the book. And I can say, just for my own heart, this has been a very encouraging exercise. And I hope that you can say the same, that as we have seen some of the most amazing truths about God... And what he has promised to us, it's been such an encouragement to my heart. And I pray that it's been the same for you as well. So what I want to do this morning is we're going to take just a few minutes and I'm going to go back to chapter 1 and we're going to take some highlights as we went from chapters 1, 2, and 3. And I'm just going to hit some of those high points and then we'll spend the rest of our time looking at chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, which will end that section. 
So you can kind of follow along in the text if you want, or just listen as we cover some of these things, and then we'll study together those last two verses. Paul starts this letter by introducing himself as the apostle of Jesus Christ, someone who has been sent or commissioned for a particular task. His task was, as we know from Galatians and Ephesians and some of the other letters, to preach the gospel of Christ primarily to the Gentiles to establish churches, to establish leaders in the church. The letter is addressed to the saints who are in Ephesus, which we know were primarily Gentile Christians. There certainly were some Jewish people scattered in there from the dispersion, from persecution, whatever, but primarily this is a letter written to a Gentile audience, and we see that really clearly as Paul specifically in places addresses you Gentiles, kind of makes that distinction and that separation. Then, after he introduces things in verses 3 to 14, he gives this sweeping and historical account of what God has done in Christ to provide, to accomplish, to purchase this salvation that he is going to draw our attention to. And we spent a lot of time on those 11 verses because it is one of the most dense, rich sections of Scripture. I don't mean dense in like... I'm dense, kind of hard-headed. I mean dense in like, there is so much there. And if we were to go back to Ephesians 1, we would see more things that we did not see. That's the power of God's word. And I'm so thankful for that. Then with great clarity in this section and really good skill, Paul told us about some of these themes. If you remember, we saw election. We saw adoption predestination. We saw the will of God at work. We saw salvation and how it was accomplished through the blood of Jesus. We also saw the work of the Holy Spirit. And all of these things, if you remember, were in the context of drawing us into a sense and a state of worship. Three times in those 11 verses, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace, over and over, Paul is pushing us to recognize that the things that we know about God should produce in us an attitude of worship. Good and right theology produces doxology, worship. And we're going to talk about that more as we come to a close today. Then in verses 15 to 23, Paul is giving thanks to God for the faith that he has given to these believers. And he asks God, if you remember, to open the eyes of their heart that they would see three things. That they would know the hope to which they've been called. They would know the riches of the inheritance in the saints. And they would know the immeasurable, unlimited power of God that he works on behalf, not against, but on behalf of his chosen people. Paul ends chapter 1 by telling us about Jesus Christ. How he has been placed in a position of authority and supremacy at the head of the church. And this is the first time that we see the church come into the book of Ephesians, which we will see several times as we keep going. Chapter 2 then opens with this indictment against all of humanity. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And we talked at that point about following the course of the world and following the course of Christ. And how there is no way to walk both directions at the same time. And Paul's point in drawing our attention to this is that now that we have been saved, if you have received salvation by grace through faith, you do not walk in the way you used to walk, but you have been raised to newness of life. 
That was his point in this section. But we're not left in this hopeless state. You remember? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were in this sinful, dead state, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. And Paul goes on to tell us that this salvation is not just for this life, but that we have an inheritance, a future for the people of God that is sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And I was thinking as I was kind of going back and rehearsing some of this stuff in my mind, what if the salvation that's been promised, what if it worked this way? That God gives you and says, you know what, your sins are forgiven, your conscience doesn't need to nag at you all the time. You know you're right before God for this life and you can just enjoy it and that's it. That's not the salvation. The salvation is not only for this life to produce in us holy living, Christ-like attitudes, assurance, but it is to point us forward to the next. That's what we celebrated last weekend. That this life is not all there is. And the salvation of God is not just for now. It is a future salvation as well. That's Paul's point in the middle of this section. Then, just as in chapter 1, we hear about God's choosing and predestining of his people, we see in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2, the detail of how this works. By grace you have been saved through faith. God extends grace to us which is something we do not deserve and could never earn in our own strength. And he also, in addition to the grace, as if that weren't enough, gives us the faith to believe in him. This is what verses 8 and 9 were about. This was emphasized by Paul then contrasting salvation by grace through faith with boasting. And we spent a little bit of time on this. If you remember, Paul's saying... If you were to have worked for your salvation, you could take credit for it. But as it is, it's a work of God's grace. Therefore, do not boast in what you did not do. Which is a good reminder for all of us because we are prone to want to take credit and get recognition for everything. But as I've said before, the Christian life is all about glory. Who gets it? Who deserves it? Then in verse 10, Paul tells us some of the reasons why we were saved. And we said, why would God do this? Not only to glorify himself, but he has prepared things for us to do. The Christian life is not just a sitting back and going, well, now I'm saved, I can just wait for heaven. There are things that God has prepared for us to do, things to walk in. And we contrasted that walking with the walking of the course of the world. And if you weren't here for any of that, they're all on the website. You can go back and hear as we work through those things. Then, in verses 11 to 22, Paul takes up the theme of unity in the gospel. And he draws significant attention to the fact that there are no longer distinctions that divide in the church, but because of Christ, because of his sacrifice, we have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. We are children of God's and we ought to demonstrate the very unity that exists in God himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, working perfectly together to accomplish the will of God and so it should be in the church. Any hostility that once existed, and he's using the example of Jew and Gentile because that's the context that he's writing to, anything that was there has been killed in Paul's words. Not just put away and said, well, I hope that doesn't come up again. 
It is nailed to the cross, never to raise its ugly head again. All of that hostility, all of that anger, all of that hatred that existed between these two people groups. Paul says, in the gospel, there is no room for it. And we are to model that in our lives as well. God has redeemed a diverse people that ought not to fight and quarrel about ethnic distinctions and cultural differences. Rather, we are to be focused on the gospel of Jesus. Now, Paul is not saying that to think about uh, what we would call racial issues or ethnic things is negligible. Now, that doesn't matter. He's not saying that. His emphasis is that we need to get the order right. If we come to the problem and primarily think, well, we just got to get these people groups together and then everything will be fine. That's a very shallow understanding. We need to look beyond the issue that the world is saying, focus on this, do this. We need to look beyond that and get to the real issue, which is everyone has a need for salvation from their sin, and it only comes through Jesus Christ. So that when we come to this section, and Paul is talking about unity and coming together, it is not primarily a horizontal level unity. It is unity because of Christ in the gospel. Yesterday I was helping a friend, we were shoveling rocks, and we went to the landfill to dump the trailer of rocks, and there was this guy who had absolutely buried his van in a mud puddle. And he didn't know it was a ditch or whatever, he was just nose first into this thing. You could see about that much of his front tire, I mean, he was absolutely buried. And we were dumping our rocks, and he would kind of look over at us, and he was about 100 yards away, and um, so we th- we'll dump our rocks, and we'll go see if we can push him out or whatever it was. We had a strap in the Suburban, got under, pulled him out. He was super thankful. And uh, we were talking to him. So this was Aaron White. A lot of you guys know Aaron. We're both pastors. So we're talking about him, about, you know, do you have a good church to go to? Are you, do you live around here? All these kinds of things. And he said, he was a Hispanic gentleman. And he said, you know, I didn't come over right away because, you know, this day with the politics and the race stuff, I didn't really know what you would say if I came and asked for help. That ought never be the case in the church. No one should be afraid to ask for help because of the way they look. And the gospel frees us from those old feelings of animosity or hatred or superiority. It frees us to know that we are one in Christ. We ought to be a people marked by that kind of compassion and understanding and recognition that it is all about Jesus. That was Paul's focus in that section. He ends chapter 2 with this structural language, right? Identifying Jesus as the cornerstone of the church. He says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus being the one who sets at the corner, setting the directory, drawing the borders. Saying, this is what I will for the church. Then chapter 3 brings us to the mystery of the gospel. So Paul kind of brings it full circle now with the Jew and the Gentile being brought together and now here's what he says in chapter 3 that the mystery was that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Right? He's kind of putting a bow on this thing and finishing it up and saying this is the reality of the mystery that they are fellow heirs in the gospel. 
Paul tells them how he was made a minister of this gospel to bring to this, this mystery to light, to expose it, and to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. We spent a whole morning talking about what that means. Then for the past couple of weeks, we've looked at Paul's prayer now in verses 14 through 19 of chapter 3. And the main point of this prayer was the power of God giving us strength. It's a prayer for strengthening, that we would know the power of God that works through His Holy Spirit to understand the immeasurable love of God and to be filled with the fullness of God. And we've talked about all of those things at length. And now, this morning, we're going to end chapter 3 by looking at the last two verses. And this is what's called a doxology. And if you're unfamiliar with that term, a doxology is what I would consider a multi-directional statement in that it is being spoken to an audience for the benefit of all. It's not a really specific thing. We do this at the end of our service. We come to the end of our service. I read a prayer. It's a prayer to God from Psalm 67. Be gracious to us and bless us. Make your face shine upon us. I'm praying to God, but it's for your benefit. That's what a doxology is. So we come to this last couple verses, and that's what Paul is doing. He is taking the theology that he has just articulated and worked through, and that is producing in him this praise, this prayer to God. So I'd invite you to open your Bibles, and we're going to read just the last couple verses of Ephesians chapter 3 together. Ephesians chapter 3. We'll read verse 20 and 21. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Now Paul has sandwiched his prayer request between two statements about God. You notice that when you look at this section 14 through 21, he has in 14 to 16, God is the father of all peoples. He possesses infinite riches of glory in himself. And then on the other end, after the prayer request, there is this statement about God who is powerful and powerfully works within us. So what's Paul's aim in structuring the passage? Why would he take this request and say, here's who God is, here's what God does, request, 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 here's who God is. Why does he structure things like that? One of the reasons, primarily for this audience in Ephesus, but also for us, is to help us see that this God, the God that Paul is preaching, is able to answer prayer. God is able to answer prayer. Remember, Ephesus was predominantly pagan. Hundreds of temples for thousands of gods. And the people were used to praying empty ritual prayers to a little statue that would never answer anything. And Paul is drawing contrast between what they are used to in their religious systems and now God, the Father of everyone who has the ability to answer prayer. So I think Paul writes this way to show the readers, and maybe we need to hear this today, that this is no ordinary God. This is not a God who sits on a shelf 
This is not a God made with human hands as we read in the book of Acts. This God has the power, strength, ability, and more importantly, willingness to answer our prayers. God's ability to answer prayer is stated by Paul in these verses in seven ways. You don't have to write these down, you can if you want, but just listen to how Paul talks about this. And I believe this is in the context of answering prayer, giving us confidence that when we come to Christ and we pray to God, he'll hear us. One, he is able to do or work, for he is not an idle God. Secondly, he is able to do what we ask, for he hears and answers prayer. Number three, he is able to do what we ask or think because he reads our thoughts. Can you imagine how stunning this would sound to that audience who, like I said, had only ever known any kind of deity as a little clay statue or silver statue? There is no way on earth that that thing is going to hear what you're thinking. This is not that kind of God. Paul is encouraging and teaching us this God is different. He not only hears what you say, but hears what you think. Number four, he is able to do all that we ask or think, for he knows it all and can perform it all. Number five, he is able to do more than or beyond all that we ask or think, because his thoughts are higher than ours, as we read in the Bible. Number six, he is able to do much more abundantly than we ask or think, for he does not give his grace in calculated measure. Isn't that a great way to think about this? When I was younger, we used to, every now and then, um, get pop. We hardly ever had pop, which I should probably thank you for, Mom, because it's good. But when we would get it, Mom would say, when it's gone, it's gone. Can I have some pop? Sure, but when it's gone, it's gone. In other words, when it's gone, we're not getting more. Is that what we expect when we come to God? God's like, well, I'm going to give you grace, but when it's gone, it's gone. No. No, God's grace is endless. That's why Paul stacks up these words about limitless and unfathomable. And in the context of prayer, we should have the confidence that he will answer and abundantly answer because he never runs out of his resources, ever. And the reason Paul says this is to give us confidence in that fact. Seven, and lastly, he is able to do very much more, far more abundantly than all we ask or think, for he is a God of superabundance. What an encouragement. If you ever doubt, which we do, we just do, and so I want to encourage you, when you doubt God's ability to answer your prayer, or if you doubt that he even hears you, go back to this text. And see the inspired Apostle Paul say, God is able to do so much more than you could even think. And be encouraged. Now, the infinite ability of God to hear prayer and answer them is, Paul says, according to the power at work within us. If you were here last Sunday... We saw from Romans chapter 8 that it is the Spirit of God that dwells in us that gives us this power. Okay, Paul's not talking about some kind of a power that we conjure up on our own. 
or something that we kind of purchase. There was a story in the book of Acts about the man who wanted to buy the gospel so he could have the same power to do miracles. And Peter says, no way. This is a power that God works in us, not something that we work in ourselves. That's what he meant in verse 13 at the front end of this. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So in verse 20, when Paul says, according to the power at work within us, he means the power of the Holy Spirit at work in every believer. Now in verse 21, Paul makes this wonderfully amazing, loaded statement. And if you don't think it's loaded, you might after we're done. Verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You see, God isn't shy about his glory. We talk a lot about the glory of God, and it's actually kind of tricky to define because the Bible uses that word in a variety of ways. But God does not hide his glory, his radiance, his beauty, his power, his worth, his holiness, all those things. He's not hiding that. He's put it on display In fact, he doesn't apologize for it. He doesn't soften the significance of his glory so that we can get our tiny minds around it. It is what it is, and God is not sorry for that, nor should he be. The Old Testament repeatedly talks about this, about the glory of God. It talks about the displays of God's glory. It talks about how God thinks about his own glory. Let me just read a couple of texts, very short and hopefully familiar. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare or display the glory of God. Psalm 29.3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. He's not hiding. Psalm 57.5, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. It is the desire of the psalmist that the glory of God be known everywhere, which Incidentally, is the same desire that God has. Isaiah 48, this is God talking. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And then when we come to the New Testament, nothing has changed. God is still passionate for his own glory. He's still putting it on display, only now we see it perhaps with greater clarity because we see it not only in the things around us, not only mediated by some kind of priest or other worker, we see it in the person of Jesus Christ and in the subsequent spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 4, the gospel of the glory of God. And the church and all of its members are meant to be the vehicle by which the glory of God is made manifest in the world. That's why I say this is a loaded statement because the implications are unbelievable for the church of God. 
we see the significance of the church clearly in two different places here in Ephesians 3. Earlier in verse 19 of chapter 3, Paul says that his mission was to bring to light... No, this is chapter 2, I'm sorry. Paul says that his mission was to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be, what? Displayed. God's people are to be a declaring people. A people that speak, a people that show, a people that live out the gospel that we have been saved by. We don't want to advertise our own knowledge, our own abilities, the things that we collect in ourselves, but according to Ephesians, we display the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, and the glory of God in the church. Now, the second time we see this is here in our text today. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Just as we saw earlier, that the calling of the church is to make known God's wisdom. Here in verse 21, we see that the church should be the place that God is glorified. Now, there are many reasons God ordained the church to exist. Right? When we think, what's the purpose of the church? Well, we come together. That's what the church is, a gathering of believers. We participate in the ordinance, communion, baptism, We encourage one another. It's where we worship corporately together. And isn't it sweet to sing together? You can sing in your car, and you should. But when you're together, and we hear one another, and we're worshiping God using the truth of the Bible, there is something sweet that happens there. And there's many reasons why the church exists. But it is to be a place where we hear the Word of God preached, And where we mobilize people to take that message out. And in so doing, we glorify God. In verse 21, I think we see the overarching purpose. Right? There's many reasons for the church. And we just listed some of them. But we could fill in the blanks with all kinds of things that the church is to do. But here in verse 21, I think this is the connecting theme. This is the overarching purpose purpose for why the church exists, why we, Grace Bible Church, are gathered together right now, and this is what it is, to glorify God. To Him be glory in the church. We have an elders retreat this weekend. We're going to be talking about what does it mean What does it mean for us to obey this verse? What does it mean that we glorify God at Grace Bible Church? And I'd ask you to pray for us. As we think, as we pray, as we navigate, we we know that we're the, the people that God has called to this church, but we want to be faithful. We want to be obedient. We want to lead in a way that glorifies God and stirs you up to glorify God in your life. So please pray for us this Friday and Saturday as we are together. Now notice at the end of verse 21 that the glory that God receives is not a temporary glory. (laughs) This is not a one-time payment, so to speak. 
We don't give God glory for a season and then move on to something better. There is nothing better. Texts like this, I think, are what motivated the historical church to write things like the creeds and the confessions. Many of us are probably familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Heidelberg or all these confessions where they would take biblical truth and put it into a catechism, which is just a simple question and answer format to help people learn the Bible. And one of these is really clear, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. First question, what is the chief end of man? What's our purpose? Their answer, to enjoy God and glorify Him forever. Taken from texts like this. Paul's point here is that the glory that God receives from His people, from His church, will be an everlasting glory. Which is good news for you and I because we are recipients. <laughs> we receive from that glory as an overflow of everything God is. So you should be encouraged this morning that the glory of God will never diminish. It will never fade. It will only grow as His people are faithful in worship and praise and obedience. You and I will never grow weary of bringing God glory and enjoying Him for all eternity because when we do that, when we glorify God, when we enjoy all that He has given to us, we are satisfied. You and I have never really been satisfied here. We haven't. I mean, you can get the best night's sleep, wake up, have the greatest coffee, have a wonderful day with your family, just full of all the blessings of God, and you're not truly satisfied. It's because we weren't made to be satisfied totally here. I mean, I've been to Old Country Buffet. I'm still not satisfied. We're not meant to be satisfied with worldly things. We're meant to be satisfied with the glory of God. Which, again, going back to last week, is why we need a body that has the capacity to enjoy God's glory forever. Which is why the resurrection is such good news. The paradox of eternity is that you and I, everyone who has faith in Jesus, will both enjoy the fullness of God and yet never reach the end of it. <laughs> never! And yet there is no lack in God. It, it just, it's hard to get your mind around. But brothers and sisters, long for that and live your life that way now, knowing we know this can't satisfy, but oh, let that dissatisfaction motivate you to live in light of eternity where we will absolutely be satisfied by God. Oh, man, I can't wait. The reason, I think, that Paul uses, remember all these words that he's used so far in Ephesians, talking about surpassing grace and abundance and riches and immeasurable, all these descriptive words that he stacks up is because he doesn't know what else to say. Sometimes you get to realities of God and you simply have no words. Now, as we come to a close, let's go back 
to the glory that God is to be given in the church. We are gathered together as a local church this morning, and I want to offer three suggestions for how we are to do this. How are we to glorify God in the church and in the lives that we live? These are not even close to being exhaustive because we know that there's a way to glorify God in everything we do, but I want to give you three points of application. First, God is glorified in the church when we act like the church, not the world. God is glorified in the church when we act like the church, not the world. Here's what I mean. God has a design for his people. He has a purpose. He has given us instruction for how we are to order things. He has placed Christ at the head of the church, given it a design, and he did not do all of that and then just say, I'm going to let them figure it out. I'll just leave it up to them. They can do whatever they want. That's not what God says. His word is clear. There are things that he has told us, things that he has instituted, and we glorify him most when we conduct our worship in a way that honors him. Now, this doesn't only apply to corporate life, right, the things that we do in the church, but it applies to the way we live our lives in the church in relation to one another. How do we love one another? How do we care for one another? How do we forgive one another? And possibly forgiveness is the greatest one to emphasize because we're going to sin against one another, and there will be ample opportunity to demonstrate forgiveness and patience. So how do we do that? See, the world's version of love care, forgiveness, is totally conditional. You be nice to me, I'll be nice to you. It's what we would call reciprocal. If you do this, then it comes back to you. Is that the way we are to act in the church? The end of Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Was God's forgiveness of your sin conditional on something that you did? No. So when we come to these texts and we read, love, care, forgive, be patient, bear with one another, they are not conditional commands as if if someone does these things for you, then you go ahead and do that for you. That's the world's operation. Get that out of here. We show love compassion, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all the fruits of the Spirit because of what God did for us. Not because we're hoping to get something back in return. We glorify God in the church when we act like the church and not like the world. Number two, God is glorified in the church when we give priority to the preaching and living out of the gospel of Jesus. When we give priority to the preaching and living out of the gospel of Jesus. When people hear the gospel and respond in faith, this was the end of chapter 1, when Paul says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, right? When people come to know Jesus through the preaching of the word, God is glorified. Because, if we put that together with 2, 8, and 9, 
It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and God gets all of the credit for that. Therefore, when the preaching of the gospel happens, when you and I live our lives in a way that the gospel is evident and people see that and come to know and love and trust and treasure Jesus, God is glorified in that. This isn't just my job, by the way. This is your job to take the gospel, internalize it in a way that it comes out at every point of your life. If, if you come on a Sunday morning, or if I do, this isn't just for you. If we come to a Sunday morning, we enjoy the worship, our affections are stirred for Christ because of what we've heard from the word, and then we leave it here, and we go and live our life, and then we come back next Sunday and pick it up again, and then leave it and go back. How does Jesus look good in that? The gospel is to be lived out, outside of here. We come here to be refreshed, encouraged, strengthened, equipped, Paul will say, for the work of the ministry. But it does not stay here. It cannot stay here. It needs to go with us. And I believe that God is glorified in the church when we prioritize the preaching and living out of the gospel. Lastly, God is glorified in the church when our theology produces doxology. When our theology produces doxology. We spoke about this a little bit earlier, and I think we're actually seeing this demonstrated in Paul's writing. Right? He takes three chapters to lay this foundation of our sin, our deadness, the life in Christ, how God has chosen a people for himself, all of these wonderful things, the work of the Holy Spirit, the redemption in Christ, and then he bursts into doxology. I think we need to model our worship after that because it glorifies God. It's so important that we don't only get half of that phrase right. You follow me? We have theology, which theology is just two words put together. Theos meaning God. Ology means the study of. Biology is the study of life, right? Okay. Theology is just the study of God, what we know about God. If we take that and we just say, I know all these things, I'm glad I do, I know the truth, I know right things about God, and it doesn't have any implication, it doesn't have any overflow in your life, then we err on the side of cold, kind of heartless doctrine. And if we go all the way to the other side, and we say, I don't, don't confuse me with all the theology, I just want the experience. I just want to come on a Sunday morning and sing and have my emotions stirred up and just give me that. It's emptiness. We must not and cannot separate the truth of God's word from our worship of God. Doxology is an overflow of good theology. We must keep the Bible at the center of our worship. Otherwise, it's empty. So I believe that God is glorified in the church when our theology, the things that we know of God, produce in us worship and praise to Him. Let's pray together that Grace Bible Church would be a place where God is glorified. Pray with me. Father, as we come now to the end of this section, 
and we see all of the different things that you have done. We see all of the things that you have provided for us in a way of salvation and redemption through the blood of Jesus. Father, I am so thankful that you have provided this for us. And I pray that our church would glorify you by living out the gospel, that we would allow the things that we know, the things that we hear, the things that we learn to produce in us an attitude of worship and praise that all of our life would be, as Ephesians 1 says, to the praise of the glory of your grace. Only you can do this. Only you can do this. So please, wed these things together, the truth that we know in Scripture, and a passionate life of worship to you. God, make it so in our church. And would the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have heard and believed take its effect in this town and the surrounding communities. God, people need to hear you. They need to know you. They need to know that there's hope, forgiveness of sin. There is relationship to be brought into, and Father, would they hear it through us. Build your church and bring many sons to glory. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.